Well, Ruth is just one of the many characters that we're going to put our focus and attention on this summer. Uh, I think there's probably upwards of, of 12, 13, 14 um, that we're going to be looking at. And, and one of the things that we want to do this summer in considering these characters in the scriptures, and we're starting very, very purposefully with, with Old Testament characters, and then we'll get in a few weeks to the disciples and the, the leading women that surrounded Jesus' life as well, um, is that we want to highlight and, and marvel God's grace in the lives of everyday, ordinary people. Because His, his grace is amazing, and, and, and to highlight that, to marvel at that, is, is a goal. We want to look at them before they came to Christ. You want to understand a little bit of what they were before. And then we're going to look and try to understand as best as we can at who they became because of God's grace. And in some characters, it's a little easier to do than others because we have more information um, than we do for some than others. But it's just amazing as you look at the people that God chose to use. Because He uses all kinds of personalities. He uses all kinds of people from all kinds of different backgrounds. He uses people with all kinds of gifts. He uses people that have had all kinds of struggles, perhaps even had a few victories. But these are ordinary, everyday people. And there's not one particular mold that God is looking for or trying to conform everyone into except the image of Jesus Christ. And, and so in some ways, we want to try to bring these people a little bit down to earth without magnifying ourselves pridefully. And that, that will be one of the challenges throughout the summer, is to try to understand them a little bit more in their humanity. I think we can have a tendency to look at people who have done great things for God, and we can at times be discouraged by what we see. I mean, we can, we can be prone to think, I could never do that. And perhaps even find ourselves rationalizing then why. You know, I, I, could, I could never do what Noah did. Well, it, Noah built the ark by swinging the hammer one blow after the other. And every one of those blows was an act of faith. Every one of those blows that he swung Every one of the moments that he shared with the people that were around him, because he were told in 2 Peter that he was a herald of righteousness, every time he uttered that, you know what, God, God's going to bring rain, he did so by faith in the promises of God. And I think we can look at Moses and we can go, I could never lead God's people that way, and yet Moses did so one foot after the other. By placing his faith and trust in the promises of God. I think there's a tendency in our lives that we can even look at each other. And we can go, well, you know, I, I, could, I could never be like them. They seem to have it all together. They, you know, they, they, they perhaps don't seem to share in the same type of struggles that, that I share in. And instead of finding ourselves and allowing ourselves to be encouraged by believers who have gone before and have perhaps a greater maturity and, and wisdom to help us navigate the difficulties and trials, we end up shutting ourselves off from them to say, well, they, they just don't get it. And we can elevate people to this plane that becomes very unhelpful. 
And so we want to try to look at these characters in, in their humanity and maybe knock them down just a few notches. Because at the heart of it, they're people who place their faith and trust in the promises of God. And they took one step after the other in obedience to Him as a result of that. And so in that, the goal would then be that we would be encouraged. The word disciple doesn't show up in, in the book of Ruth. It's not a, a word necessarily that the Old Testament uses to characterize those who followed God. But it is a New Testament word, and I don't know if it's an inappropriate word for us to consider as we just think about Ruth and next week Elizabeth and Zechariah, who were Old Testament characters, even though they show up in the first few chapters of the New we have an opportunity this summer to marvel at God's grace in the lives of His disciples, those who followed Him. I pray that we'd be encouraged by doing so, that we wouldn't, we wouldn't see something amazing in Ruth, but we'd see something amazing in God's grace. And we'd see that, and we'd marvel at that. And it would cause us to worship Him that much more as we gather corporately and as we live our lives throughout the week individually. And so that's what we want to try to do this coming summer as we think through God's grace and do so in the lives of all of these people. And so let's pray to that end now before we even consider Ruth specifically. Well, God, we pray and we ask and we invite you to come and cause us to marvel at your grace. God, would you cause us to see you for who you are? Gracious, compassionate, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. God, we pray as we consider who Ruth was and your work of grace, your grace in her life, that we would, that we would be left in awe. And God, we pray that you would cause us as we marvel at your grace to worship you more. And we thank you for your grace that has been given to us in Christ Jesus. And it's in His good name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, grab them and turn to Romans 3. We're going to get to Ruth 1 in just a minute, but go to Romans chapter 3. Because before we highlight and marvel at God's grace, we need to begin by asking ourselves the question, what, what exactly is grace? I mean, what is it? What is grace? Our, our church's name is grace. If you have a child that's looking at junior camp, you have camp grace. We have, uh, you know, our fellowship is the grace brethren. Right? But this word shows up everywhere, but what does it actually mean? So it's a question that we need to ask ourselves as we're on the front side of this, and one that we're going to need to just remind ourselves time and time again throughout this series. Grace has been said to be unmerited favor. That is a simple definition, and that's not necessarily wrong, but it is, however, incomplete. 
Because you can give grace in that sense to anybody walking down the road. If you gave a cold Pepsi today to a stranger walking down the sidewalk in front of your house, it could be argued that that is grace. It was unmerited favor, if that's the only words that we use there. But to understand biblical grace, we need to understand that that it's actually unmerited favor to those who deserve wrath. And so there's a set of words in there that gets added to a biblical definition of grace that, quite frankly, is fairly unpopular in our world today. The idea of grace being that God is good to me, though I don't deserve His goodness. I don't get what I deserve. It's been said by one theologian that grace is defined as God's goodness towards those who deserve wrath. And we see that in Romans 3.23. We see that written and articulated, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So there's, there's something that we deserve. And Romans 6.23 tells us what that punishment is, what that wage is for our sin. The wages of sin is death. So all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. The wage of that sin is death. The wage that we have earned because of our sin is death. What we deserve is wrath. And we're justified. We're made right with God by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. See, for us to understand grace, for us to marvel at this amazing grace, we have to understand it from the standpoint that it is absolutely the very last thing that we deserve. Not just that we can't earn it and work for it, because that's all very true as well. It's the last thing that we deserve. And God's grace is His goodness to us who deserve His wrath. And we see this in a very general sense, in that God allows the ungodly to breathe. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust, is what we're told in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount. There's a common grace, that God is good towards those who deserve His wrath that aren't His children. I mean, there are unbelieving farmers in the world that have crops that grow. That's God's grace. But if we allow His grace to be understood in a salvific way, a salvation-oriented way, His grace is that we are justified. We're made right with Him through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The most famous hymn to ever be written is Amazing Grace. And those words capture this essence Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You don't have amazing grace if you don't have somebody who's wretched. You don't have amazing grace if you and I aren't fully and totally sinful and incapable of saving ourselves and only deserving the wrath of God. God's grace is only amazing when we understand the very fact and truths that we don't deserve it. 
It's not just that we can't earn it, because that is true as well, as we'll look in just a minute. We don't deserve it. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Lost people don't find themselves. Blind people don't restore their own sight. It's Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 that tells us here in verses 2, 8, and 9 are very, very famous and familiar, but I wanted to show you 2 and 4 because we have some very helpful explanation there as well. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the love, the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So God takes dead people, and He makes them alive. And that's His grace. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. We can never repay it. When I read a verse like this, my mind immediately thinks of Lazarus in the tomb when he's just laying there, having been dead probably about four days. Everybody around the tomb is gathered, and they're beginning to object to the fact that Jesus is going to do something about it, and they get, he, he stinketh. Jesus calls out to Lazarus, come out. Lazarus was absolutely incapable of changing anything about his reality in that moment. Dead men don't undead themselves. And the call of Jesus Christ went out to him. Now, it would be really foolish for Lazarus to come out of that tomb and go, wow, I am so glad I walked. I'm so glad I took those steps. In similar ways, it would be really foolish for us to go, I'm so glad I trusted. As if it was somehow dependent on us. Because as Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 would tell us, it's by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is the gift of God. Faith itself is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man would boast. And our, our church, our fellowship has its heritage in celebrating this grace and working through some of the articles of incorporation things and, and, and stepping into some of the archives and the details as we've tried to tie up some of those loose ends. It was, it was in the 80s that the official name of our church was changed from the First Brethren Church to the Grace Brethren Church. And that goes back to events that happened about 50 years prior where the word grace was actually used as a derogatory slang word for those who wanted to believe in God's grace and not the fact that I could contribute to my salvation. And so these individuals who became then known as the Grace Brethren were turned away at a national conference of the Brethren Church because they had the audacity to believe in what Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 2, that it's by grace and grace alone that we're saved. And to that I say, amen. I'm proud 
to be counted one of those grace brethren people. God's grace is only amazing if we realize that we don't deserve it. That His grace is defined as His unmerited favor. His goodness to those who deserve the very opposite. And Ruth would have been one who deserved the very opposite. As all mankind are. So let's go to Ruth chapter 1 together. We'll look at the first few verses Begin to try to understand some of the characters, understand what is going on. Ruth is after the book of Judges, it's before the book of 1 Samuel. And while you're there, I'm going to read you the last verse in the book of Judges, because it helps us set the context of what is happening here. Judges 21 verse 25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's believed, debated, but believed that Ruth probably happened around Judges chapter 10. Kind of around where Jephthah shows up on the scene. A little bit before Samson, after Deborah, right around that point in time. It's pretty difficult to prove that conclusively, but the book of Ruth would have been nestled into the book of Judges. And so this last verse where we're told that everyone did what was right in his own eyes is incredibly important for us in understanding the context of what then is happening with Elimelech and his family. Picture the people of Israel just running rampant in disobedience to the law and having turned their back on the Lord. If you want to have an extensive understanding of that, just read the book of Judges. And it is one of the most disturbing books in the Old Testament. And it, 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 it churns your stomach as you read about what the people of God did in their disobedience. And it's in that context... Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes that this man by the name of Elimelech decides, I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes. And he does so. And we are introduced to him in Ruth chapter 1. In the days when judges ruled, there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of the two sons were Malin and Chilion. They were Epaphrites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malin and Chilion died. So the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Maybe to just give you a little geographical detail, it could be difficult to see there, Um, but if you look for the word Judah on the left hand of the picture, right above that you're going to see where Bethlehem is, and then on the right side of the Dead Sea you're going to see the word Moab, and that's pretty easy to 
read and identify. Well, the journey there is, is identified by a red line, which could be real challenging for some of you. Um, and so they would not have been able to cross the Dead Sea. They would have had to go up and around the Dead Sea, and they would have been sojourning into territory and into a nation and a country that they were not supposed to sojourn in. Men from Israel were not to and not supposed to marry men or women from Moab. And yet Elimelech decides to take his family there. And he gets sick and dies and his sons decide to take wives there from Moab. Now we need to understand just briefly how the nation of Moab even came to be. Because what we see in the formation of the nation of Moab is part of the consequences of the fall from Genesis 3 beginning to reverberate out throughout history and time. And we see that those consequences and those effects are having their effect. It's a ripple that is beginning to wash its way and work its way through time. And so one of the consequences of the fall is that there would be, there would be disharmony in relationships. And Adam and Eve are told that there will be disharmony in their relationship. And we see the marriage-husband-wife relationship as the primary relationship where this disharmony would exist. But it then begins to exist throughout all other relationships. And there would be a battle between the seed of the serpent, or the offspring of the serpent, and the offspring of the woman. And there would be disharmony there, and there would be this battle that would take place, and the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head, though the serpent would bruise the heel of the woman's seed. And it doesn't take us but a few verses in Genesis chapter 4 where we see that battle of seeds beginning to take place, and that the seed of the serpent, Cain, takes the life of the seed of the woman, Abel. And then you get to Genesis 5, and there's all sorts of damaged relationships that take place. And so if we fast forward then to Genesis 19, you have Sodom and Gomorrah about ready to be destroyed. And Abraham graciously tries to intercede on behalf of Lot and his family with the Lord. And and there's the the famous story of, well, what if we find 50 people? And there's not 50 people, but Abraham is able to get his brother and his family out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, the angels go, and the men of the town want to have their way with the angels. And what does Lot do? He offers his daughters. You see the disharmony of relationships, and this this man who was supposed to protect his daughters says to the men of the town, here, take my daughters, do whatever you want with them. And then you get just a few verses later in Genesis 19, And it's his daughters that get Lot drunk and sleep with him so that they can conceive children. So you not only have relational disharmony in the fact that Lot is offering his daughters to the men of the city, then you have the disharmony and the conflict of the seeds. And the son born to the first daughter was named Moab. And the son born to the second was named Ben-Amini, who became known as the father of the Amorites, or Ammonites, two of Israel's most prominent enemies throughout the Old Testament. 
Then if we fast forward a little bit, just thinking to try to understand what Moab was, who Moab was, it was in Numbers, chapters 22 to 24, that the king of Moab found this bad character by the name of Balaam and paid him off to curse Israel. And Balaam was a bit of an unsavory dude. He probably was by, by ethnic heritage Jewish, but he's willing to take whatever finances are available to, to kind of work and maneuver and, and find himself profiting from a prophetic word hired out by a foreign nation. Well, and Balak and Balaam are in this tussle with one another, and Balaam is telling Balak, I'm only going to say what the Lord has me to say, and what the Lord only gives Balaam to say is actually blessing and not cursing, and Balak's getting more and more frustrated, more and more frustrated, but that, that stands as a point in time for us to understand that the people of Moab, all the way up to their kingly ruler, hated the people of Israel. To the point where they were willing to hire prophets from and out of Israel, or at least a prophet from and out of Israel, to curse the people of Israel. But the Lord had different plans, and it backfired on the king of Moab. We see in 2 Kings verse, or chapter 3 how the people of Moab and the people of Israel warred against each other in battle. And this would have been a couple hundred years after Ruth lived. That event is actually recorded on what is called the Misha steel. It's a stone that was carved or had carved under the orders of King Misha, who is identified in 2 Kings chapter 3. And that stone was found in the late 1800s, and it's actually on display in the Louvre Museum in Paris. You could Google M-E-S-H-A, Misha steel or Moabite steel. And find the, the, the Moabite account of this battle between Moab and Israel in 2 Kings. They hated each other. These people were at war and at odds in conflict with one another. And Elimelech leads his family out of Bethlehem. And he does so and takes them to Moab to sojourn because of the famine in the land. And then he dies. And his sons are given into marriage to Ruth and Orpah. They were married for about 10 years and then they died. One of the interesting things that I found this past week and really kind of doing a deep dive into Ruth is that it's, it's in Jewish history. And so not, not necessarily Old Testament, but Jewish history that says that Ruth and Orpah were sisters and they were the daughters of the king of Moab. Possibly the great-granddaughters of King Balak, who hired Balaam to curse the Israelites. And we can't know that fact 100%, but that's Jewish history has record of that. So Naomi decides to return. And she does so, and I mean, we are aware of the story, and, and Robbie just portrayed it for us. Orpah decides to go back during the journey. Ruth decides to carry on. Upon returning to Bethlehem, Ruth goes to work to glean grain 
And it was because it was in the barley harvest that this was supposed to happen. And Naomi sends Ruth to glean in Boaz's field because Naomi knows that Boaz is a worthy man. Remember when we were talking in, I believe it was Ecclesiastes chapter 5, when Solomon writes that a king committed to cultivated fields is good for the kingdom in every way. It goes back to this idea that those who were sojourning and those who were widows and those who were poor were supposed to be able to go on the edges of the fields and they were to be able to gather crops there. They were able to go and glean what was dropped by the workers. So the Lord had provided for people who would have been sojourning or who would have been poor for them in such a way that they would be able to find food and provision. And these landowners, such as Boaz, were to allow this to take place. And he was a worthy man and did so. And Boaz treats Ruth with unparalleled kindness. And here we have in Ruth chapter 2, Ruth speaking, and she's speaking to Boaz. And in verse 10, she falls on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have taken refuge. Boaz shows unparalleled kindness to Ruth. Now what's amazing is God's grace in Boaz's life. Because Boaz's mother was Rahab. Rahab the prostitute from Joshua chapter 2. Who when the spies came, hid the spies, acknowledged the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who were told in James chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 11 that by faith in that God demonstrated her faith with that act of obedience and her family was spared. So when we're talking about how God uses all kinds of people and all kinds of backgrounds with all kinds of gifts and differences, we need to see that screaming at us in the story of Ruth is a Moabitess who perhaps was a princess from a warring nation that would have worshipped their God by child sacrifice. She marries an Israelite man whose mother was a prostitute. And who possibly was still living in Bethlehem at that time. That's just a hypothesis of mine. There's no text to look at. But it's possible Rahab was still alive. One pastor wrote this, So imagine the stories Boaz heard as he grew up. Imagine how having a mother who had been a foreigner and a harlot, yet grafted into the olive tree of Israel by the grace of God, affected the way Boaz viewed Ruth that day he saw her gleaning in his field. 
Other men might have simply seen a foreign woman scrounging for food like a parasite, but Boaz saw something familiar and dear in a woman who had left her family, her nation, her gods to embrace Naomi, her nation, and her God. I mean, let's just marvel at grace here. I mean, undeserved grace towards those who deserve nothing but wrath. Rahab, living in the nation of Canaan, which was going to be conquered by the nation of Israel for all of their wicked, evil deeds that they had done, and God's grace in her life, redeeming and saving her out of that, and then using her to get married to Salmon, who's going to then have a child that they're going to name Boaz, and they're going to go live in Bethlehem. And one day Boaz is going to end up growing up to be a landowner and he's going to be working the fields. And he grew up as a worthy man with a mother who had once had a reputation of ill repute. And he sees this woman from Moabite, from Moab, coming. Just marvel at God's grace. His unmerited favor towards those who deserve his wrath. And so Ruth goes and sleeps at the feet of Boaz on the threshing floor. Nothing in the story of Ruth, in Ruth chapter 3, suggests that there was any immoral or sexual overtones in that moment. There's nothing in the text that suggests any impropriety took place. At best, we can probably see that the act of her sleeping at his feet was, was a bit of a cultural billboard for the guys to go, wake up, I'm interested in you. Will you ask me out? And Boaz wakes up and he devises this plan to become her kinsman redeemer. Now we don't have the time to actually even get into this, but the idea of his kinsman redeemer was an Old Testament law. It was a law given by the Lord that provided for those who were widowed and how they were to be um, cared for, married to a, a distant relative or the closest living relative who was not married, and that the name of the first relative would carry and live on. Well, Boaz's father, we talked a little bit about his mother, Boaz's father actually traces his heritage back to Tamar. She was a woman who disguised herself as a prostitute to take advantage of the son of, or the man, Judah. And you can just see this sordid lineage being used beautifully by God and His grace. So Boaz goes to the gates and he has this conversation with the elders of Bethlehem. And the man who was the closest kinsman redeemer is unwilling to take Ruth as his own And he secures a deal with Boaz through the exchanging of a sandal that allows Boaz then the legal opportunity to marry Ruth. It's in Ruth chapter 4 then that we're introduced to some of the, the genealogy. And in verse 18, the very last section in this story, we're told... Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez was the son of Tamar. 
That's the child Tamar had from Judah. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. And Aminadab fathered Nashon. And Nashon fathered Salmon. And Salmon fathered Boaz. And Boaz fathered Obed. And Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. And as the rest of the Old Testament begins to play itself out, and as God continues to reveal His promises and His plan and His good work to His people, we learn that Jesus Christ would come from the line and lineage of David. And it's in Matthew that we have record of that very same genealogy of Ruth and Rahab and Tamar being recorded as part of the line and lineage of Jesus Christ. And I think Matthew does so specifically to shine the largest spotlight he can on God's grace. Because there's five women recorded in the genealogy of Matthew. There's Tamar, there's Rahab, there's Ruth, there's Bathsheba. She's identified as the husband of Uriah, indicating that what she had done with David was not correct. And then there's Mary, a woman who in Bethlehem would have been everything. She would have been a social outcast. She would have been the topic of town gossip and scorn. Because here's this unmarried mother, pregnant with child. You see God's grace and Matthew shining this spotlight on God's grace in the lives of these people. The undeserved favor Ruth is a tremendous example of somebody who left everything. Everything they knew to follow God. God's grace led Ruth to make decisive breaks with any and all of her Moabite relatives. Her culture, her nationality, probably life entirely as she knew it. Ruth, like the mother of her second husband, Boaz, makes a decisive break and follows the Lord. And it's just amazing because some of you have that story. Some of you have made decisive breaks just as Ruth did. I stand before you this morning as a second generation Christian because I have a mother and a father who made a decisive break. and said, I'm not doing it. Like my parents did it. I'm going to go follow the Lord. Some of you can identify with what that has cost you. Some of the relational disharmony you still might have at Christmas and at Thanksgiving. And when you might talk about or things about church come up and you, you, there's some discord there because it's not agreed with. And perhaps those relatives are even very quick to share how much they disagree you know what that decisive break is. You can identify with Ruth in that regard. God's grace in Ruth was that he saved Ruth out of a pagan nation that had fought against and warred against God's people. 
God's grace to Ruth was that he had protected and provided for Ruth through her kinsman redeemer. And God's grace in Ruth is seen in that he blessed her and that she became part of the line and lineage of Jesus Christ.